0: Welcome to the God in My Closet podcast, where we explore life and light of the love who embraces all of our skeletons. I'm your host, Ben DeLong, author of There's a God in My Closet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited you're listening to this episode because it's a great one. I got to interview William Paul Young, who is the author of several books, but most notably the incredible book, The Shack. I know this book has been an incredible inspiration to many of us. In this interview, you'll get to hear where Paul's wisdom comes from, his journey through loss, suffering, and healing. Paul was so gracious with his time and is just so humble and genuine. I love this time with him partly because it highlighted some similarities that he and I have in our own journeys, and I imagine so many of you do as well. We are both married to strong women who have been pivotal in our journeys toward healing. We both have dads who really didn't have the luxury of understanding their own baggage um, when we ourselves were kids, and that created some tensions in our childhoods. This interview just really highlighted to me the, the power that love has, whether that be the love we experience from God or through others. It reminded me of the impact that my mom's love has had on my dad all these years and how he is in a much healthier place because of her. It also reminded me of how love can lead us to empathy, how we can look at our parents and begin to understand the struggles and issues they face themselves. It just really highlighted the impact that people have had on me and my healing journey. So many mentors, so many friends, and of course my wife who has been so pivotal. But to get to that healing, we have to face our own hearts and the pain that resides there. That's really what the closet is. And the book that I wrote, There's a God in My Closet. And that's what the shack is in Paul's book. The place we don't want to go, but where we need to go to experience healing. So listen and enjoy this interview as Paul helps give us insight into what it really means to enter the shack, to enter our hearts, and to find God waiting for us there with open arms. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. Um, Today I am thrilled to be joined by uh, William Paul Young. Um, A lot of you are probably familiar with him. Um, His first book, The Shack, was a very popular book that came out
1: Um, Paul was published in 2007, right? Mm -hmm. May, May of 2007. Actually it was printed because the publishers wouldn't publish it, but but printed, (laughs) printed in May of 2007 by a local printer in LA.
0: Okay. Yeah. I know you, you talk about just how funny it is that you never really meant for it to be anything. And then it just blew up and
1: yep. God's sense of humor.
0: Yep. And, um, yeah, so the shack shack blew up, impacted a lot of people's lives um you've written i know of three books that you've written is that is that all you've written so far uh crossroads
1: was, uh which is fiction eve which is fiction lies we believe about god which is non-fiction and then two reflection books uh oh, shack okay. reflections and crossroads reflections and then okay. I'm, I'm in the middle of working on three right now so
0: yeah yeah i heard you um I heard your interview with Jason Elam talking oh, yeah, about, yeah. about some of those projects. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it looks like Jason and I are going to do something in the fall. Oh, very cool. Outside of Nashville with the Ragamuffin community. Very cool. Yeah,
0: that'd be very fun. Awesome. Well, um, I shared with you that uh, you and I have a, a few mutual friends, um, one of which is, is Paul Fitzgerald, yep. um, who started the Heart Connection and Breakthrough Seminar in Kansas City. Yes. Um,
1: your book and came Suzanne.
0: out, and Susanna, oh yeah, yep, oh yeah, she's a powerhouse in her own right for sure, no doubt. <laughs> um, so we, so your book came out in 2007, I believe they they encountered the shack like right at the end of 07, the beginning of 08. Yeah. Um, very and soon. then yeah, and in the spring of 08 was when my wife and I went through breakthrough. Wow. Um, and so we so we started reading the book shortly after we went through and um, just really impacted us. Um, I know for me, because I I grew up in a lot of that religious environment of just people not really understanding the love of God very well. Right. Um, and so I had, I had a very unhealthy image of God. Um, I talk about in the book, I mean, so, so unhealthy that when I encountered divine love in breakthrough, I just assumed that it couldn't, I just assumed that it wasn't actually (laughs) faith-based. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so, so I came from that environment. My wife, on the other hand, she, she, her childhood was just hellish and she had terrible parents and, um, that treated her just really crappy. She ended up being in foster care, you know, Mm -hmm. her whole life. And, and so, you know, she, um, she wrestled with a lot of the same questions that you wrestled with of just like where, you know, where was God?
1: Yeah. And where do I belong? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. Um, A lot of missionary kids and third culture kids that I've talked to that had uh, significant amounts of trauma and abuse. um, For some reason, a lot of us had a sense that this was not God. The question about where was God is a, is a legit question. But in terms of the perpetration of the evil, we didn't have an issue that, that the perpetrator was God. Um, it was like, no, we know that people did this. Mm. The question was more like, why didn't God stop them? Right. You know, and, um, and so that, you know, that raises up a, a different set of questions. But I know a lot of people go through a time where they're, they're really angry at God, um, as if God is the perpetrator. Mm. and um and that has to be worked out but yeah yeah some, for some of us it was like no i i always had a sense that i had a real sense that jesus was the only one who wouldn't leave mm. and and um didn't didn't exactly get along with god the father but yeah. you know didn't seem jesus did either so <laughs> we, we were on the same page about that
0: yeah. But, yeah yeah so yeah i um i read i read your book and then my wife and i we went on it was uh winter break one year and mm-hmm. she likes to do, do, do the driving. And so I read the book as she was driving and, and I think read I remember, it out loud to her. Right. Oh, wow. And right. I, I, I think I remember there were times where we had to pull over cause it, mm. you know, it, she's like, I can't drive mm. and cry. at the same mm. time. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I, was, t- I get that. Yeah. So I really, really, my way
1: yeah. through the book. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So really impactful on us. Um, so for people that, um, may not be familiar with you yet, um, could you share about your, your personal journey of, sure. you know, there's, I know there's a lot that goes into how you even got to the point where you could
1: write the shack. Yeah. Cause I didn't write the book until I was 50 years old. So it took people say, how long did it take to write the book. And I go like 50 years, <laughs> you know, once I put pen to paper, it only took six months. Yeah. And, um, yeah. but the 50 years was the hard part of the, yeah. know, the preparation to write the book. And I think part of the reason it's been so well embraced and has had such a monumental ripple effect in the world is because it is so human it's asking real questions about real loss. And, um, yeah, so I'm a missionary kid preacher's kid. I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta in canada and uh, at 10 months old my parents uh were pioneer missionaries and for the and they went over to new guinea where i grew up it was uh it was a dutch uh colony at the time dutch property netherlands new guinea and then um it went through lots of changes but you know i grew up in a tribal culture in in the highlands of new guinea and um and which was incredible. And on the one hand, you know, and terrible on the other hand, Yeah, you know, so, yeah. um, I grew up with night terrors and all, all the dark side of these kinds of things. And then at the yeah. same time, you know, I learned to hunt and fish and, and, um, had really great friends and thought I was a Donnie thought I was a tribal person. I didn't, mm. I didn't, I didn't consciously was not consciously aware. Um, that I was white till I was sent to boarding school when I was six and, mm-hmm. uh, and so, but sexual abuse was a part of the tribal experience as well as the boarding school experience. And mm-hmm. it was uh, boarding school was peer on peer. And, and uh, so that was a real fragmenting um, continuum of experience. And then um, my relationship with my dad was really difficult. He was mm-hmm. a very angry young man came from a huge dysfunctional, broken history himself, yeah, and uh, you know it was back in the day that generation didn't even know they had baggage you know yeah and uh, so he he really didn't have a capacity to be a dad, not in a way that we would recognize um, yeah. he did duty really well and uh, but his his anger was um, it uh, it was it was furious and mm-hmm. um, so so, between my dad and the abuse and um, trying to trying to then fit in losing my culture and my color when when I was six, you know, mm-hmm. and then we came back to Canada when I was ten, which was an absolute culture shock and then um, trying to figure out where I fit, we moved around a lot, went to thirteen schools before I graduated high school, and um, then went to Bible school, trying to figure out. You know, not to become a professional Christian. I never wanted to do that. That's what my yeah. dad did, and I just I didn't want to do that. Yeah. But I didn't know what else. I didn't, you know. So I did lots of jobs, lots of odd things. I was, in fact, I paid my way through Bible school as a rock and roll disc jockey, six to midnight mm-hmm. rock and roll for CKCK CK radio in, <laughs> in Saskatchewan. And um, and then um, you know, went three years of Bible school. Um, they determined I wasn't a good investment for the denomination, which is true. Mm. And, um, so I worked in the oil fields up in Northern Alberta and then headed for Los Angeles where I was going to continue my undergraduate work and got stopped at a crossroads in Oregon. And that's, uh, finished an undergraduate degree in religion, um, worked for a church for a couple of years, uh, during which I met Kim mm. and, uh, married Kim. Um, she's the woman who saved my life and, um, hmm. she's, um, midwestern, my not North Dakota. She was born, but her family migrated West, big family, huge family, five sisters, two brothers. And, um, you know, I had never, uh, the shack to, to use the shack as a metaphor, which is, it, it is what it is. And, um, yeah. and the book is a parable, you know, it's true, but it's not real. And uh, but the shack is the house on the inside. it's the human soul, yeah, and uh it's the house on the inside that people help you build, and some of us it's just a shack you know it's it's it It never was as far as we can remember, a place where you wanted to live, so yeah, you know, you built the facade outside that you preferred to present to people rather than take the risk of them coming to find out what a piece of garbage you were on Mm. the inside so it's all about performance you know lying becomes a survival skill and and your addictions you hide in the broken shack and and your Mm. secrets you hide in the broken shack and you know i I drug all of that into my marriage with kim and held it together we have six children i held it together until after the sixth child which matthew who's 27 now Mm. um until after he was born And then I blew up the world, you know, Kim caught me in a three month affair with one of my best, one of her best friends and good friend of both of ours, her family and their kids and everything. And I blew up the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, it was an answer to prayer, you know, the desperate prayer that says, please heal me and don't let anybody else find out about it. So, (laughs) you know, I got half of it answered. (laughs) but it took a long time. Mackenzie's weekend in the shack represents an 11 year dismantling and rebuilding journey for me, which involved Mm. therapy. I pulled a therapist off the yellow pages right off the shelf, Mm. (laughs) went into total strangers. And as a first born missionary kid, preacher's kid, you know, perfectionist thin layer of perfection. That's the facade covering up an ocean of shame.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, and for the first time in my life knew that if I couldn't find a way to, to change that uh, life wasn't worth living, I wouldn't wasn't going to take the risk of hurting anybody again, like the way that I did. Yeah. And uh, so did therapy did all kinds of other stuff, started to let people into my life, started to make changes in the direction of authenticity. And yeah. that 11 years ended uh, uh, in in 2004 and 2005, I turned 50. And as a Christmas present for my kids wrote the shack on, on the train to one of my three jobs and yeah. I got it done for Christmas, made 15 copies at office Depot that did everything I wanted it to do. Yeah. Gave six to the kids and Kim and I kept a copy and the rest went to my friends and I went back to work. Yeah. And, uh, like my mom said before she passed, you know, who would have thought, you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> it turned into this thing and uh and it continues to be the ripple effect of the shack and then the other stuff that i've been involved in has been pretty totally surprising it's as surreal today as it was you know 12 <laughs> years ago yeah but uh but i'm grateful mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah i've heard you you know share all that before and i'm i'm i wanted to clarify so because you've talked about how um, you, you had your affair and your wife found out and, and that you told her, you know, if, if we're going to do this, I need to tell you, you every
1: secret, every secret I have because secrets have been killing me my whole life. Now,
0: did that include, had, had you not told her about any of what happened when you were a kid, your abuse or anything? No,
1: nope. Didn't tell her about that. Didn't tell her about my addiction to porn. Didn't tell mm-hmm. her, I mean, lots of stuff Yeah, and i had kept the addiction at bay fairly successfully in our marriage. But, you know, it was just a matter of time, a yeah. matter of, you know, plus, a, plus I'd find myself dangerous situations. When, when you come from a sexual abuse background, you, I don't know what it is. It's part of hypervigilance as a survival skill, but you picked up almost a sixth sense for, for broken people. Mm. And, and you, and it's almost like your magnets drawn together. And so it creates dangerous situations. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I'd managed to avert uh, uh, a few of those, but there was things that, that I needed to tell her. And then, I mean, and she, Kim is a powerhouse. I mean, and she wanted to know every detail about everything. It actually took me almost four full days to tell her everything she didn't know. Mm. And that, that really did destroy her. And she said, I'll never believe another word that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. And I thought, okay. I mean, this is the way it's going to be. Even working my way through therapy and stuff, she wasn't budging. I mean, she was just, she was, she was undone and furious with every right to be. So I never thought we'd ever heal and reconcile. Mm -hmm. And, and it took 11 years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I had an addiction to pornography as well. And, and I, you know, I, it was, there was about a year where kind of dominated my life and and um, and I was able to kind of kind of like you said like keep it at bay after that even though it was still like you know still internally it was still a big struggle and a couple years later my wife she had done something that hurt me and she felt really guilty and so there was a part of me that was like well wait it's not fair for her to feel guilty when i've done you know when i had this thing with pornography but then i realized later there was also a part of me that was like wait she hurt me so then i can share this and she can't hold it over me now wow yeah <laughs> and and so and so i shared it with her and then like you know and i didn't realize that was my motivation at the time but then yeah. afterwards i'm like wait you yeah. you can't bring this back up like, <laughs> you know what i mean like
1: I, it was like we actually have to talk about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. No, we think apology is asking for forgiveness, you know? Yeah. You know, when you apologize, you keep the power. Yeah. You know When you yeah. ask for forgiveness, you give them the power mm. and that's a, that's a whole different thing. Um, ap- apologizing is like, so I'm, I'm sorry. And what are you saying? Um, well, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry. Mm. I have to tell you this. I'm sorry. And it's still all about you. Yeah. You know, but to say, will you please forgive me? Then they can say like, for what exactly? Tell me exactly for what, mm. you know, yeah. and, and, or they can say, I, I'm not there yet. I'm still so angry yeah. and it's, and you got to live inside of that, you know, part mm. of dealing with the consequences of your choices, which only tells you how magnificent we are as human beings that our choices actually matter. You know, the fact that we can hurt people to the depth that we can yeah, just as indicative of how powerful we are as human beings. Yeah. And, and, um, and to, you know, to deal with the consequences of your choices, you know, when here I am, you know, Kim's caught me in a three month affair. I mean, it's one thing for you to get to the place where you know, you need help. So you, you confess it, but a lot of us are, I mean, we're so broken. We have to be caught. And then Mm. her dad lived with us. I mean, was living with us at the time. And, and here this gentle kind man whose name is Willard. He lived with us for 17 years, died on his Mm. 84th birthday in 2002. And in here, Willard is, um, this gentle soul and we called him Willie and the Willie in the shack is Kim's dad. Mm. And, um, and here he is, you know, and we've hurt him to the, I've hurt him to the core. And I, and I have to face that. I have to tell him what I did and I'm, I'm no, and I can see it on his face. I can see it. How deeply that I have hurt him and he never raises a voice or a fist against me, which, mm. you know, I, I feel much more deserving of a fist than I do of forgiveness. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. not. Yeah, I've got survival mechanisms that deal with fury. Yeah. I have nothing that deals with kindness, you know. Yeah. <laughs> kind yeah. the only thing I can do about kindness is to like run and <laughs> uh that's the survival skill, you know, to hide and um but it's, you know, because you, the ba- very core of what you believe about yourself that you are a piece of crap, you know. Yeah. And um and and so you're deserving of the fury because that's what was, that was beaten to you as a child too. You know? So, yeah. Oh, it's all so screwed up. We yeah. as human beings, I mean, what a mess we are. And yet inside of it is a redemptive genius, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Our, um, our son whom we, he, he was in foster care and we adopted him. Um, he experienced a lot of physical abuse and, and, um, And I I know from things that he's told us that if, and I would never do this, but I, if I ever like tried to hit him, he would just say, go ahead. I've had worse.
1: Oh, I know. I know. I know. Foster care is a lot about like being a missionary kid or a third culture kid. The big issue is where do I belong? And it, and it fosters, I use the word carefully. It fosters an orphan sense a sense of not mm. belonging anywhere and orphans don't believe anything actually belongs to them mm. they're just they're just waiting for somebody who's more powerful and more worthy to come take it away yeah and so there's a sense of impermanence about everything in your life and it's such a hard journey to break out we have a granddaughter who is uh, adopted from uganda and she was a a throwaway child you know mm. and uh, and my son and his wife adopted her when she was 18 months old and she's the youngest now of four and um and you know came with the night terrors and everything else and it was just like wow yeah. here here we've got this little girl brown little brown girl in the middle of a white world
0: mm-hmm. and I,
1: and i look back at my pictures of growing up and there's a little white boy in the, in mm-hmm. the brown world you know yeah. and so she and i have a connection and we will because we, we have similar histories, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so it's part of, part of the redemptive genius of grace. Yeah. 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 My,
0: my wife was in a master's program for social work and she had to write a paper where you look at your family history and talk about your identity. Wow. And that she couldn't even do it. Yeah. Like it, it it was one of the times where it just tangibly hit her and she's and she was like, I'm an orphan. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have, I don't have that. And it was just, I, I, I can't identify that. That is so foreign mm-hmm. to me, but to watch her wrestle with that was really tough.
1: Oh, so hard. So hard. And, and, you know, for those of us, if we have to find someone to belong to, because belonging yeah. is no longer geographic, you know, a lot of people, identify, well, I belong here, you know, and, uh, they could be American or Canadian or whatever. And, um, and belonging is relational. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So with the, your history that you told us about and all the stuff that you had to endure as a kid and what, what kind of lies did that create within you about yourself and about your
1: world? Yeah. Lots of them. You know, it was funny. When I wrote the book, Lies We Believe About God, I was, I was talking to two theologian friends of mine, Baxter Kruger and Brad Jerzak. Mm. And I was telling them what I was working on. I said, hey, let's just list lies that we believed. You know? yeah. and, and in about five minutes, we had about 150 of them. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and it felt like we were just scratching the surface. Yeah. So uh, it creates a lot. I think the, the, some of the biggest have to do with the character and nature of God and but even I think especially as a child more profoundly than any questions about God are questions about who I am as a human being yeah and and our experience tells you um and your parents communicate to you some of the most fundamental um beliefs that you will have about your ontology or the truth of who you are ontology just is the greek word for being b-e-i-n-g and and so what is true about you that is true about you that is true about you that is true about you so um, when you experience sexual abuse it tells you that you are a commodity that you know your value is you can exchange your body for someone else's pleasure or whatever um yeah and it And it reinforces the idea that you, you exist to be used um, mm-hmm. that that's that's part of the truth of who you are that you're you're there for other people to use you. Um, I think some of the lies for me was that I was not good if there is a basic mm-hmm. you know and what's worse is that not only was that communicated to me by my dad in terms of his his um, violent temper. Um, when he would come at me, I would yell three words at him to try to stop him. I'll be good. I'm Mm. promising him if you can just give me another chance, you know, I'll be good, which, which reinforce the idea that I'm bad. You're bad. You're bad. You're bad. You're bad. And, And so a fundamental belief is that I am not good. And Baxter Kruger does a lot of really beautiful things with the I am nots, you know, all the I Mm. I am not smart enough. I'm not, in fact, you know, I graduated Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude first in my class and I walked out of my undergrad, with my undergraduate degree thinking I fooled them. Mm. That's how deep it was. And this kind of paradigm where where you believe that that's the truth about who you are, it runs so deep that it colors everything. Uh, in your landscape. And then Mm. for those of us who grew up in a religious, religious environment, a rigid one with a bad theology, um, they reinforce the idea that the lie that you are not good. Yeah. And um, yeah, you remember, well, people go like, well, remember Jesus talking to the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler starts a conversation by saying, good teacher, you know, good rabbi. Mm. And And what must I do to be saved? So he's interested in his performance, his existential experience. Yeah. He begins with an ontological statement. He says, good teacher. And Jesus totally ignores the performance side of the equation and says, why did you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Now, if you're looking through the grid that I grew up in, you're going like, well, that's That's true. There's only one who's good, you know, so I'm not good. And, and I have a sin nature. That's what Mm -hmm. I was told. I'm totally depraved. I call it posts, you know, piece of shit theology. That's all I, all I am is a piece of garbage, piece of crap. And, and, and is that what Jesus is saying? And is Jesus by saying that, saying about himself, I'm not good either, you know, and that can't be right. Right. Well, what Jesus is asking him is, so young brother, do you recognize in me, a human being, the presence of God who is good? In other mm. words, do you, did you call me good because you recognize, whether you realized it or not, you recognize the truth of who I am as a human being? You know, mm. because God doesn't become anything that's not good. God becomes wow. fully human. Yeah. yeah, You know, so... So, what does this say about your ontology about the truth of who you are mm. and and that's the question here and this young man he doesn't even grasp that that the fact that he doesn't recognize his own goodness he's now trying to perform his way into being approved enough to inherit eternal life right mm.
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and he's so he's starting from the same deficit and and that's why Jesus confronts him about ontology is yeah. really a beautiful thing. So, so this basic lie that you are not good then permeates everything, which means yeah. that that's the truth of who you are, that you have a sin nature, that, you know, that, that the deepest truth of who you are underneath all of your performance, and underneath the fact that you told the truth in this given situation, you were kind in this, you asked for forgiveness, you forgave, whatever, that underneath all of that, you're still a piece of crap. Mm. and and we even had theology that went as far as to say well you know you're a piece of crap but jesus will cover you up with his righteousness and kind of sneak you into heaven and um and uh, to get you by god the father you know who's uh who doesn't like pieces of crap and (laughs) but and theologically it's called imputed righteousness that we're going to we're going to attach the righteousness of Jesus to you in such a way that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. Yeah. He sees Jesus. Right. Yeah. And again, it all comes from this fundamental lie that you are not good, which means you are not created in the image and likeness of God who is good. Yeah. And, and I tell you, it's, you end up with behavioral modification. You end up with trying to change your behavior to prove to God that you are worth his attention and his affection, mm. right? Yeah. And that, that is such a dead-end trap. And uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they, not ontologically, but existentially. So mm. if you believe you're a piece of crap, you will act like one and you will let people treat you like one. Mm. And um, And so, you know, the flip side of that is that just because you're not a piece of shit doesn't mean you're not full of shit, you know? So, <laughs> so but it, because of the lies, yeah, you know? So we believe this, so we then act it out. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're addicted to porn, h- how are you, you going to get out of any addiction? Porn being just one of them. Because porn, porn is the imagination of a relationship in which you are cared for or without any of the risks of a relationship that is honest, you know? Yep. Yep. And so it's, it's, it's an escape, right? It's, it's an escape from real love into the imagination of love. And, um, and it's highly addictive when you feel like a piece of crap. Mm. Um, and so what's going to, what's going to free you, what freed me? And I haven't had an issue with porn for now, you know, almost 30 years. Well, mm. yeah, almost 30 years. And, and so why why don't I now? Why haven't I? Why isn't it not an issue in my life? Well, because is it, is it I got so scared of hell that I finally got scared straight. You know? <laughs> no. You know? Hell was never big enough to deal with an addiction. Because mm, yeah. you, you can't scare an addiction away. Yeah. You know? Fear, fear only exacerbates your sense of shame. And, um, uh, shame, you know, you can't use shame to kill shame. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work. Yeah. And, um, so it's, and it wasn't an accountability group as beautiful as it is to be in community with people who are truth tellers. Um, it wasn't self-discipline for sure uh, mm-hmm. because self-discipline only lasts as long as you have the energy to keep it um, <laughs> alive. Yeah. And self-discipline doesn't come from the inside out. It comes from the outside in. And here's the deal when when you think that you're a piece of crap you got nothing on the inside to live out from you have mm. to adopt external religious forms and performances in order to have any kind of justification of who you are as a human being yeah and and that's just that's absolutely destructive and debilitating and mm. so what what healed me from the addiction to porn was getting to the place in it and it, part of it was the therapy and working through my crap and all of this stuff, you know, but, yeah. but it was coming to the internal recognition and realization that I am by nature, pure of heart and mm. self-controlled. And yeah. I didn't, I didn't need self-discipline from the outside in when I had self-control from the inside out and, and that I'm pure of heart, that that's the truth of who I am. I'm not this piece of piece of crap that's looking to objectify women or human beings or whatever. I actually am pure of heart. And as that took over and and I began to see myself that way, which I it began the way of my being naturally began to be an expression of the truth of my being. Mm -hmm. you know so if the truth of your being is your piece of crap guess what the way of your being is going to match it in one form or another or you're going to feel like a fake the entire time you're performing righteous acts Mm -hmm. and uh and it's like no no the truth of your being is that you are pure of heart so when you begin to embrace that as the truth of who you are because it is the truth of your being made in the image and likeness of god then the way of your being will will follow it will Mm -hmm. match it and it does it naturally.
0: And yeah.
1: So I don't have an issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. For me, um a lot of my stuff came with my relationship with my dad and my my dad was you know, he had a temper on him and it was mostly because he wasn't healthy emotionally and he didn't know how to he didn't know how to handle the stress of being a pastor um cuz his you know, he grew up in a dysfunctional family. So how, yeah. you know, how you everybody, gonna do everybody
1: brings to the table their stuff. Yep.
0: And so, you know, when he acted out of that and, and my heart as a child and I can understand this now in my heart, it's like, well, it must be my fault. Of course. And, and so I can, you know, I can see those lives, how they develop that, you know, everything's my fault and I'm all alone. And if I, you know, if I screw up, people are going to leave me and, and, and then that fundamental one that you mentioned that, that I'm, I'm just bad.
1: Yep.
0: And um, it was a little while ago. I, was, I had been seeing a therapist for a while and, and um, I was talking about like past relationships I had and, and there was, he, he could see that there was this common thread that, that I blamed myself for every time something bad happened. Yeah, And, and he just, he just like stopped me in my tracks, which kind of frustrated me cause I was venting <laughs> yeah. and he just stopped me and, he, and he's like, are you a bad person? And, and it like, you know, stunned me. And I was like, well, I was like, I know the answer is no.
1: In your I, mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the right answer is no. Right. <laughs> the real answer is yeah.
0: Yeah. And I was like, it, I know the answer is no, but it feels wrong for me to say that
1: feels dishonest.
0: Yeah. And he was like, why? And I was like, well, I have these thoughts and I've done these things. And he's like, yeah, but everybody struggles with stuff. And, and so then he just kept repeating it over and over again. Are you a bad person? Are you a bad person? He's asking an ontological question. Yeah. And he just kept asking it until like something within me broke. And I just, I just started weeping. And then And then he just started saying over and over again, you're not a bad person.
1: Wow. So beautiful. So beautiful. And And so, so right.
0: Yeah. And that, you know, you talk about the, the way of your being matching the truth of your being. And that, that is definitely, because for me, the, you know, the, the pornography, it was bigger than, it was like, I'm, I'm not good, but, you know, I part of the reason I got married and I didn't realize that this at that but part of the reason I got married was I'm not good. So she's supposed to make me good. Yeah. And, and then that doesn't work. So then I, so then I fall into pornography and then I, you know, fall into all, all these things because I'm not good and something has to make me good. But then when, when I start to realize, Oh, I am actually good, then I don't need that stuff.
1: Correct. Yep. Yep. And that's the beauty of, the, of beginning to understand what the truth of your being is. So when you say, well, I'm just an impatient person. Actually, you're telling a lie. It's not true. Mm. You're made in the image and likeness of a God who is patient by nature. Mm. And so therefore, the truth of your being is that you're patient. Well, as long as you can, you know, and it becomes a crutch to us, right? It, there, is, there is a comfort in being a piece of crap because it validates and justifies your acting like one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when you begin to have a revelation that that's not the truth of who you are, then you're confronted with, with the fact that you are, you are believing a lie in such a way that you're trying to justify the brokenness in your life because it, it's, it is the prison that you've learned to call home. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, Mm. I, and that's the, that's the internal conflict that begins to take place in a person's heart because there is a longing for authenticity in every human being there is the longing to be a truth teller yeah. there is a longing to to know how to love in a way that breathes life into the relationships that you have and 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 there is a longing to have to be able to say words that are kind and good and right mm. and and all of those things are at war with the lies that we've been told is the truth of our being yeah. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff.
0: Mm. There was, um, I was going, I was kind of refreshing my memory of the shack and going through it again. And there was a line in there. Um, I can't, I can't remember which member of the Trinity Mac is talking to, but he's, um, they're talking about, um, how men and women, how they try to find fulfillment and something else in different ways. Oh, yes. And um, there was a line in there where it's talking about what women are looking for in fulfillment and they can only find it in God. And Max says, well, no wonder I feel like a failure with Nan because I can't seem to be that for her.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, so in Genesis, when Adam turns from God, he he turns to the ground and the works of his hands. When she Mm -hmm. turns from God, And the warning is, your turning will be to the man and he will rule over you. The word in the Hebrew is teshuka, which means to turn. Mm. It's translated desire, but it's not desire. When they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, um, the LXX, uh, they translated that word teshuka as epistrophe, which means to turn. Mm. So you're turning from whom? From the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To whom? to Adam for the woman to the ground and the works of your hands for the man mm. turning, turning and then looking for what identity worth value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love. So when, when the woman turns to the man, the warning is he'll rule over you because you're capturing, you're capturing, uh, a human being in a set of expectations that they cannot fulfill mm. they simply can't and when you trap shame like that you're going to get fight or flight mm. um, yep. and so when the man the man doesn't even turn to a relationship which tells you how broken um, the male side of the conversation is yeah. turns to the ground and the works of his hands to his career to property territory This is why men primarily are the warmongers. They create nation states. They shed, you know, it's Cain that kills Abel. It's on and on and on. And the women are trying to call men back to their humanity and the value of relationship. Well, the man turns to the ground, the works of his hands for what identity worth value, significance, security, Mm -hmm. all the same things. The ground can't do it. And so you get thorns and thistles like, uh, uh, I'm not God here thorns and thistles and mm. it says in both cases that the woman is going to bring a children into the world through pain and the man is going to work the ground with the uh in toil he will work the ground with the sweat of his brow right well the yeah. word toil and the word pain are the same Hebrew word and they're not physical it's etzef mm-hmm. and it means mental anguish so now in a world mm-hmm. dominated by men who are non-relational, um, they, it, the woman is going like, and I want to bring a child into a war full of horrors and evil and, yeah. and, and damage and abuse and all this. And, and, uh, and the man is working mental anguish, the pain of trying to eke out a sense of value, worth and significance out of the ground that he's in competition with all these other men for. And, Mm. and then we live now in a culture where women suddenly are emerging as so much better at even business because of their relationality. Yeah. Yeah. And the movement in business is toward authenticity, vulnerability, clarity, empathy, you know, Mm. which are, which are relational in nature. And it's like, no wonder everybody's mad at everybody, you know, (laughs) because Because, you know, in, in that picture, and, and these are, you know, this is a broad brushstrokes, but it's saying that the turning to relationship is actually healthier than the turning to the ground and the works of your hands. At least it's a relational, yeah. which is so much more like the character and nature of God. But the, the, the turning is, is one thing. The call of hope is to return, return, turn your face away from that which you've looked for identity and worth back to me. Which is Trinity. And in my face, I'll tell you the truth of who you are. You I will tell you that you are significant because of who you are, not what you do. I'll tell you, you know, on, on and on. Identity, worth, value, significant. You can find there, which then means that a woman doesn't need a man for a sense of worth, value, significance, security meaning, etc. Mm-hmm. Therefore, partnering then becomes a powerful thing, not Mm. not a woman trying to suck the life out of a man or the man trying to suck the life out of the ground in the works of his hands. Yeah. You know, as both turn back toward their face to face relationship with Trinity, then they begin to have a true understanding of who they are. And they join forces as, as people who don't, who don't need something or someone in order to validate their existence or identity and worth. Yeah. And, and I mean that, and that's the hope. I mean, we're all so bad at this. It's ridiculous, but, but that's the movement of wholeness in our lives is toward that. And, um, and it's got such a beautiful picture of that in Genesis. I think Mm. it's, it's so helpful. Well, and without that,
0: I, you know, I, I look at, um, how our marriage was, you know, before, um, that healing and it was so go, codependent, and it's like, how how do you not have a relationship with codependent when it's built like that? You know, when yeah. it's built like, yeah. you know, where you you are trying to find your fulfillment in something rather than knowing who you are.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and for 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 men in a world that has been male dominated for a long time in terms of um identity is you you gain it through competition against other men. You know, or Power, war, violence, or whatever and and all of a sudden, when you feel like a failure in competition at work mm. then 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 you then you turn toward what you turn toward a woman or an idea of a woman, you know because again that 's what porn is and yeah and and you begin to say you need to you need to give me identity and worth and value mm. and 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 you end up with this very fragile male ego because it's totally at risk because on the one side, the man feels like a total failure when it comes to the competition in the workplace. Yeah. You know, and then he's now turned to his relationship and she's telling him the truth about his failures. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, you know, where do you, where is the safe place here? And yeah. so she doesn't live up to his expectations and, and and he's not living up to hers, especially if he's failing in the workplace. It's like you're not providing mm-hmm. me a sense of security and the things that I. Need. All of it's based on the fact that we don't trust that we're loved by Trinity. We just mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. And, and so we got to find somebody or something that will love us and tell us that we're okay and that we're worth worthwhile. All of it based on, you know, the the lie of separation that that we're not loved inside the embrace of relentless affection.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> as I was mentioning to you when I um, reach out to you, I, I, the book I wrote is called "There's a God in My Closet," and just that journey of, you know, I hiding all my lies and shadows in the closet, including my unhealthy image of God, and never wanting to go in there, but then that's where I need to go to find healing.
1: Right, because and, there's a boogeyman's been in the closet, you know, the yeah, whole time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's you know, there's so. I mean that's pretty. I mean that's what the shack is—is is that you have to go. Yeah.
1: You have you to, go to go back into your own heart. You have yeah. to do that. You have to do the inner work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I I want to read this um, short passage from your book um, from the shack, and um, in this passage, Mac is talking to Jesus, and he's talking about Missy, his daughter that was murdered, and, and just sharing with him, you know. How hard that has been, and so he says, to "Jesus, uh, thank you for being with me for talking to me ab- about missy. I haven 't really talked about that with anyone. It just felt so huge and terrifying. It doesn 't seem to hold the same power now. The darkness hides the true sides of fears and lies and regrets. Jesus explained. The truth is they are more shadow than reality, so they seem bigger in the dark when the light shines into the places where they live inside you. You start to see them for what they are. But why do we keep all that crap inside, Mac asked. Because we believe it's safer there. And sometimes when you're a kid trying to survive, it really is safer there. Then you grow up on the outside. But on the inside, you're still that kid in the dark cave surrounded by monsters. And out of habit, you keep adding to your collection.
1: Wow, that's really good. (laughs) <laughs> <It's>, it is <laughs> I, I you know, sometimes I read stuff that I've written and I go like who wrote this? you know? It's just <laughs> yep. that's that's our participation with the Holy Spirit. You get to say yep. stuff that you you couldn't have said on your own, you know. Yeah. So but that's really good. That's really helpful and it's so true.
0: And how I mean it I, I don't know, maybe there's not a good explanation for this because you know so many times us going into the closet or into the shack we don't go there willingly <laughs> you know we go there because circumstances
1: has forced us we've been caught yeah whatever. you know we can yeah.
0: either you know we can either die or we can face it um but i mean what how would you i mean what other ways would you describe like what does it look like to go into that darkness <sighs> and to face that
1: so Acknowledging that the shack, the closet is your own heart, your own broken soul, mm. that it makes total sense that you've got to go there to find out where you're stuck. Yeah. And, and because that's integration, you know, as long as you won't go there, you're a disintegrated person.
0: You yeah.
1: Know, you're, you're creating a facade that you're representing as the truth of who you are without dealing with all the stuff that has impacted who you are. And, um, So the journey, the work of the kingdom is actually the journey inward. And, um, and we, uh, we don't want to let go of it. We don't want to deal with it because we don't want to acknowledge our shame is already, already whispered that we're, we're so terrible anyway.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and, and shame and guilt are different guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. And, um, and to deal, to go back into that place, you, you have to encounter the losses that you've experienced. And that, that just seems too overwhelming. And I think one of the reasons why the therapeutic community has been incredibly the kindness of God to humanity mm-hmm. is that they, they go with you into those spaces because we were never intended to be alone or even we were never even intended to have the illusion of being alone. Yeah. And uh, sometimes we just need God with skin on to go with us into those places where we can investigate and explore um, the the monsters in that place. And and so the shack, you know, it it represents where Mackenzie is stuck, but it's way bigger than that. And and I did it with the garden too, the garden that he's working in, digging up stuff yeah. with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And that darkness, that that is in there. Even the beauty sometimes has to be dug up because it's, it's fraught with things that, that aren't life giving eventually. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, you, you, you begin weeding through this place and then you find out it's your own soul that you're working on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all those different pictures of, of trying to deal with the world on the inside, there is the child that is still there. And that passage alludes to, Um, The child, there's a, um, there is a poem by a friend of mine named David Tensen, uh, Mm. T-E-N-S-E-N. Let me see if I can find it. And um, one day I was, uh, I was talking to David on, I don't know, on, um, probably just on Messenger or whatever. And he's, uh, he's in Australia and he is a. a good friend of mine who is a poet. He's a singer songwriter and he is, he is a pastor. He has got a couple of little kids, so he's quite a bit younger than I am. Mm. And um, so I, I, I texted him and I said, look, um, I've got this great idea for you to write a poem about. And, um, cause I'd been in a conversation that had popped up. And so I, I, I thought of David. And so I said, the, the title is who took your voice who took your voice. Hmm. And, um, and within 24 hours, he had sent me three poems called who took your voice. And, wow. um, and I, I want to read you one of them. Um, uh, it might be the, I think it's the very first one of the, the trilogy of them. And, um, Oh, yep, it is. So here is his poem, the first draft that he did of who took your voice Mm, Maybe your no was not enough and dominance pushed it aside like it was never there and you learned your words didn't matter. Maybe your silence was required and coercion whispered its lie that secrets were safer And and you learned that truth equaled pain. Maybe your story was cut short and shame covered your mouth to filter in the darkness. And you learned to only be positive. Maybe now that you are safe, the older stronger you can stand beside the little one inside and begin to ask who took your voice. Mm. Maybe you were not created to have your boundaries crossed and you're no dishonored. Maybe you were not created to hold all those secrets and all that pain. And just maybe you were not created to tell a partial story to be entirely accepted.
0: Mm. Isn't
1: that great? Oh my gosh.
0: Really powerful.
1: Yeah. But that's the journey, right? We've, we've got to go. And this is why I have Mackenzie, the father and Missy, the daughter, both their names spell map. Mackenzie Allen Phillips, Melissa Ann Phillips.
0: Mm.
1: They both spell their name. Uh, both their names are anagrams for maps.
0: Mm. And,
1: and, I, and I wove them together that way. I had a woman in Nashville who wrote me and said, when the book first came out, she said, you know, I don't know anything about you, but my sense is that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child, probably mm. your innocence. And Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to, to deal with it. Yeah wow. And, uh, and that's exactly right. So and maybe now that the older, stronger you can stand beside the little one inside and begin to ask who took your voice?:
0: hmm. Yeah, oh, that that speaks so much truth. So it, I've,
1: it does.
0: That's definitely been part of my journey. Yeah. Of so just um, um, <clears throat> going back to that that little me and and just saying I I understand how it feels.
1: Yeah, that's why it took me fifty years to become a child because I didn't have a I didn't have the subtleness of being a child when I was little, mm. and, it, and it took fifty years to finally be comfortable inside my own skin, be content, not to feel like I was. You know, on the precipice, and and to learn to l- just to laugh and be present to to what was actually in front in front of me, rather than, you know, be a a whole ball of survival skills of hypervigilance <laughs> and everything else. And yeah, and uh, I like this being a child stuff. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going back to being an adult. That was too much work. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. So good for you, Ben. I mean, it's it it is the hard work. It is courageous work you're worth the work. And, uh, mm. and, and that's true for each one of us. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you what a hell it is to to deal with your stuff sometimes and, and to face the the fury in, in the hurt that you've caused and spilled out and all of that. It's, I'm, I'm grateful every day for that process. I'd never want to go through it again ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fire still is a fire, you know, it it may, it may have purified a lot of things, but it's still a fire. Yeah. But it's the fire of God's affection. And, 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 and one last thing is that, you know, the unexposed is the unhealed. And part of the commitment of God is to expose, expose the lies, expose the secrets and um, not to humiliate, but without exposure, there is no healing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, um my s- spiritual director, you know, he told me, you know, God wants God wants you God wants to show you your sin. And um in my my, you know, mindset that just felt so condemning. And and so I, you know, I came back at him, I said, No, God, I don't think God wants to sh- I don't think God wants to shove my sin in my face. And he's like, Well of course not that implies condemnation. But if you can't accept that God's for you, you're never going to move forward.
1: Mm. Yeah. And this is why the beauty of God uh, in the early church was uh, that Jesus was the judge, the judge who was the great physician. So the judge wants you to know why you're sick Mm, and, and how you're hurt. And then, and then that judgment will lead to, Punishment, which we call a prescription or surgery or whatever that moves you in the direction of becoming whole. Right. Yeah. So this, this is a judge that you can run to with your arms wide open and say, please judge me to the core. Mm. So yes, God wants to show you your sin for the purpose of exposure. So that then a way is then uh, opened up for healing and wholeness to happen.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking this time with me. And, um, I, um, I told you, we, my wife and I, we moved away from Kansas City around the time that you and Paul and Susanna started working together. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, oh man, we missed out on that. So I'm, I'm so glad we got to, to get in yeah. touch and it's all timing. Yep. Yeah. Um, you, did you want to, um, share real quick the, the things that you, you mentioned before that you're working on right now?
1: Oh, I'm working on this book on ontology that we've sort of hinted at a whole bunch of different ways. And then I'm working on one called The Art of Living in One Day's Grace, which is just learning how to stay present to what's actually in front of you, not creating imaginations that don't exist, Hmm. which are all fear and shame based for the most part. And then I'm working on uh, fiction work. I'm actually working on a sequel for The Shack. We'll see if Hmm. that actually happens or not. But my relationship with the guys on Death Row in Tennessee, Unit 2, in uh, Riverbend uh, Penitentiary has opened up a, a potential storyline arc that uh, mm. we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Oh, wow. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. <laughs> very cool. So thank you. Thank you for this time, Ben. It's been an honor to be with you for sure. Oh
0: uh, Yep. Feelings mutual. Thanks so much.
1: You're welcome. Blessings.
0: That was such a great conversation with Paul. Really appreciate the time that he took to to chat with me. Um, I've been so blessed by him and and his work and, um, just so thankful for this time. If you haven't read the shack yet, uh, do yourself a big favor and get the shack and read it. And it is so beneficial. It has impacted so many people and his work is just really, um, really profound when it comes to this journey of inner healing of going into our hearts. Um, so check out the shack, check out his other books, crossroads, Eve, Lies We Believe About God, as well as the reflections that he's written on Shack and Crossroads. Um, Again, so thankful for this time. Also, you can interact with him. Um, Check him out at his website, wmpaulyoung.com. That's wmpaulyoung.com. And if you want to explore this journey of what it looks like to go into your heart and to find healing in that way. Check out Paul's work, as I mentioned. Also, my book, There's a God in My Closet, Encountering the Love Who Embraces Our Skeletons. Is, a lot of that is just me sharing my journey on going into my heart and finding God's love there. Um, but whatever, whatever you need to do to find that healing, it's so, so important. Well, thanks so much for listening today. And as always, Nothing in the world can separate you from the love of Christ. You are in Him, and He is in you. Take care.